This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. You know, I don't know if it's just me, if I'm just the popular kid or not, but it seems like about every week I'm getting phone calls from people that, uh, and you know the kind of calls I'm talking about, uh, like the kind where they want to offer an extension on the warranty on my car. Um, and like jokes on them, my car is like 16 years old. And if you remember, it got totaled earlier this summer when my neighbor backed into a park along the street and I'm now riding my bicycle to work. I don't think my Gary Fisher that I had back in college needs an extended warranty. We're good. Right? But the other kind of calls we get, we get a, you get the robocall from the IRS and they're telling you that you have back taxes to pay. And then if you don't, uh, they're going to send the FBI and arrest you. And this is that courtesy call. And you think to yourself, oh, bless your heart. And I do mean in the southern way. Wow, these people, they and the robocallers, all of them, they portray themselves as, as someone looking out for your best interest, don't they? Right? They're providing protection. They're keeping, uh, keeping you from being punished. But the truth is, they're nothing more than scam artists, are they? Preying on others. And with just a dash of charisma, with just a sprinkling of urgency, and a whole, whole bunch of persistence, right? Eventually, somebody returns that call, and they extend that warranty, and they pay those back taxes that they've already paid. And in this morning's passage, as we continue making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, learning to live out the way of Jesus by listening to the words of Jesus, Jesus warns us of these scam artists, of these false prophets, he calls them saying that they've even made their way into the church. And with that same dash of charisma and that same sprinkling of urgency, they're portraying themselves as providing spiritual guidance on this journey, of providing you protection and, and saving you from unnecessary suffering. And they're equally deceptive, and they are just as dangerous. And so last week, we began the close of the Sermon on the Mount, seeing two ways in which we are called to live our lives. And this morning, we're going to look at the second of these three closing warnings. And what we're going to see here is two types of leaders. Right? That's the title of our sermon this morning, two types of leaders. One is going to lead you along the way of Jesus. The other is going to lead you astray and lead you away from Jesus. And so if you haven't already, let's grab our Bibles and let's open them up to the New Testament book of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 today in verses 15 through 20. And what we're going to see Jesus do in this passage is he's going to give us three things. He's going to give us a warning about these leaders. He's going to give us a description of what they look like. And then he's going to give us a method of detecting them when they are in our presence. And so Jesus, he begins here in verse 15 with a warning and he opens saying, beware of false prophets. I think we should stop there and ask the question like, what is a false prophet? It's hard to be aware of something you don't know what it is. And so a prophet, if you think of it, is a messenger. Someone who speaks on behalf of another, typically a deity, one who speaks on behalf of God, someone like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Haggai, who we're going to look at here in September. And their message would typically include two things. It would include both foretelling, telling of what was yet to come, but it would also include forth telling, to calling, God calling you to, to go forth. And so that's a prophet. And so a, a false prophet is someone who claims to be speaking on behalf of God, but isn't. Right? Rather than speaking truth, they're suppressing truth. They're speaking lies and only partial truths. 
And, and what that means is that there must be some standard of truth that we are comparing everything to. The psalmist, he says in Psalm 119 that he tells God, the sum of your word is truth. The sum of, uh, of the words in this book is truth. Proverbs 30 says that every word of God proves true. It proves to be true. And that's why David asked God in Psalm 86, he says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth, that I may be shaped by your truth. I see God's spoken and written word is that standard of truth that we are compared to. But not only the written word, uh, when we open the gospel of John, we see Jesus declare himself to be the truth, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And his gospel opens by saying that in the beginning was the word and that the word was with God and the word was God and that Jesus is that word incarnate. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And at his trial, he told Pilate that he came to bear witness to the truth. And Jesus, he promised that, that those who abide in him, that, that come to him and follow him, that they will know truth, that they will be set free by the truth, and that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. And so what Jesus begins here saying is that he, he's declaring those who speak against the truth of God's written word of Scripture, those who speak against the living word of God himself, those are the false prophets, those who speak against God rather than for God, speaking a false truth, claiming God said something that he never actually said, spreading lies in the name of God, those who share partial truths, who withhold some of what God has said. Those who are twisting the truth, taking what God has said and, and twisting it to make it say what they want it to say. Those who are subjugating God's truth under their own version of truth, promoting their version of truth. And then there are false prophets who just outright deny the truth, refuting what God has actually said. Because these false prophets, rather than saying what God wants his people to hear, they're just simply tickling the audience's ear with what they want to hear. And you notice, we, we seldom warn against non-existing threats, do we? Right? There's no point in having a beware of dog sign if you don't actually have a dog, or at least a, a big dog that we actually need to be aware of. Unless, I guess, if your no soliciting sign's not working, I think the beware of dog sign might work just as well, if not better. Another one is baby sleeping, do not ring the doorbell. We did that when we moved into our new house and we realized we didn't even have a doorbell. But we left the sign up anyway, it was great. But there's no point in beware of dog sign if there's no dog, right? If there's no big dog. Alice, you guys know how cute and cuddly Alice our little beagle is, right? Right? We don't need a beware of dog sign with Alice. If anything, we need a beware of cuteness sign with Alice. But these false prophets, see, they exist and they've existed throughout Israel's history. 1 Kings 22, uh, Ahab, who was king of Israel, he, he wanted to recapture some of the land that had been taken uh, from him by Syria. And so what he did was he, he gathered not one prophet, not two prophets, not three, but 400 prophets together. And he asked them as he gathered them, he said, should I go or should I take it back? Like, is this what God wants me to do? And the prophet said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But his buddy Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, he's like, you think maybe we should get a second opinion? Which in reality would be like a 401st opinion. 
And he's like, well, there's this guy, Micaiah, but to be honest, like, I hate the guy. He's no fun at parties. He never has anything good to say about me. I don't want to hear what he's got to say. The king only listened to the prophets that told him what he wanted them to hear. They weren't speaking on behalf of God. They were speaking to get closer to the king. They were false prophets. And God, he warned his people through the prophet Jeremiah of these false prophets. He says in Jeremiah 23, he says, don't listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say no disaster shall come upon you. Live your own life. Live out your truth. It'll be okay. These false prophets, they weren't just a back then problem. They were a, they were a right now problem in Jesus' day. Chapter 23, Jesus, he calls out the Pharisees, not for not practicing what they preach, for laying a heavy burden on others that they themselves refuse to bear, for, for shutting the gate to the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness, right? The very things that we've seen Jesus lay out in the Sermon on the Mount, basically stopping you from faithfully following the way of Jesus. And these false prophets, they continue to exist, don't they? They've continued to exist throughout the history of the church for the next 2,000 years. Taking what God has said, twisting what God has said, not for the good of others, not for the glory of God, but to promote themselves. Typically in pursuit of one of the four Ps, right? To obtain more power, to build a bigger platform, to obtain higher pay and more position. And rather than selflessly loving and serving others in response to God's love. They're motivated by their own self-centered ambition. They, they're playing the, the main character in their own story rather than taking part as a, in a role in God's story. And so if we, need to be, uh, if we need to be aware of these prophets, if we need to be aware of these dangerous prophets, what do they look like? Like we should be able to recognize them. And so what Jesus does is he goes on to give us a description. He says in verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So we see two things here, don't we? The first that we see is these false prophets are dangerous. Right? He doesn't describe them as cute, cuddly Alice. No, they are, they are wolves. And the, the wolf, remember, he, he's the natural enemy of the defenseless sheep that would have been raised throughout first century Palestine. Jesus here, he's drawing on familiar imagery to those that had gathered on the mountain as, as God had referred to his people, to the nation of Israel, as sheep. He, he, he did this in a prophecy to Ezekiel. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 100 verse 3 says, We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And so while the wolf, let's be honest, like the wolf is beautiful and majestic when you're watching him on Animal Planet from the comfort of your own living room, isn't he? he, he he's beautiful when you're behind like five fences at the zoo. Man, make no mistake, that animal is dangerous. That animal is ferocious. He is ravenous. He's feeding on sheep rather than making friends with the sheep. And these false prophets are, are no less dangerous, preying on God's people. But in this illustration, we see not only are they dangerous, they're also deceptive, right? They rarely come up and introduce themselves as a wolf. 
do they? No, they're, they're in disguise. They're like, they're Transformers. Y'all remember Transformers, like robots in disguise? Okay, the wolves are wolves in disguise. They come to us in sheep's clothing. They are, they're indistinguishable from the very sheep that they came to devour first. It's kind of like the, um, you ever seen that Just Like Us section in Us Weekly? Um, you know, the one you, see, you see it at the doctor's office, you see it at the dentist. Nobody in this room is going to admit that they have a subscription. It's okay. We're not asking for a show of hands. But here's the deal. They, they try to make these celebrities look just like us by, by giving us pictures of them. Well, they went out for coffee, and they went to the gym. The kicker is, is they got in their Land Rover and went back to the house in the hills afterwards. That's where they're not so much like us. But man, these false prophets, they've, they've got the right degree. They've got the right experience. They walk the walk, they talk the talk, they sound the way they should sound, they look the way they should look, they, they say the right things, never showing their teeth until it's too late, until they're about to sink them into your flesh. It's the very same description that Jesus gave of the Pharisees, the same accusation he accused them of later on in chapter 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. He goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And these dangerous, ravenous wolves they deceptively enter the flock in sheep's clothing with a singular goal, and that is dividing and devouring the flock. They do this by planting seeds of doubt, little whispers here and there, planting seeds of doubt and forming factions. They are divisive, and they are dangerous to the health of a church. And so given their danger, given their deceptive ability to disguise themselves, like again, remember, a wolf, um, he's not going to tell you who he is. Instead, he's going to be dressed up like grandma in the bed when Little Red Riding Hood comes knocking on the door. That's a wolf in sheep's clothing. So then if that's the case, how do we tell if that person that we're shaking their hand, how do we know if they're just another sheep like us or if they're a wolf in sheep's clothing? And like this is where... Superhero movies are like they get your mind thing. Like, wouldn't it have been really awesome if Jesus had just given us X-ray vision, and we like see through that costume? Like, I can tell who you are. You're not fooling me. But he didn't, did he? At least he didn't give me that. But what he did give us was a method for detecting false prophets, a test that reveals who they truly are. Listen to what Jesus says here in verse 16 to 18. He says, "You will recognize them. You will recognize these false prophets by their fruits." And he asked, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every, I'm going to say verse 19. That's a fun one for later. But this fruit that Jesus is talking about, it's, it's what the tree produces. It's, and the thing with fruit, uh, it takes time to develop, doesn't it? It takes time to ripen. It requires patience. And the fruit that Jesus is talking about here, the fruit that we are looking for in others is faithfulness and obedience. Right? Everything else, a visionary, charisma, appeal, all of that is secondary, if not further down the list. 
right? We're looking for faithfulness and obedience. That fruit is faithfully living out God's will in obedience to God's word. That's what we're looking for. Faithfully living out God's will in obedience to God's word. Right? You want someone who is, who is on that same journey as you. Someone who has already entered through the narrow gate. And while not perfect, none of us are, someone who is striving to faithfully follow the way of Jesus in every aspect of their life, growing more and more to be like Jesus. So I want to ask, why would we ever follow someone down a path, uh, follow them on a journey that they themselves are not walking? You would never hire a tour guide that has never been to the place that they're showing you. So Paul Paul, he said to Timothy, uh, his, his young protege, he says, uh, tells him to set an example for the Ephesian church that had been entrusted to him. Set an example on how he spoke, how he lived, how he loved. He, he called him to devote himself to helping others know Jesus and grow to be like Jesus. But not only that, to immerse himself in knowing Jesus more and growing to be more like Jesus. Man, I have found so much encouragement in that passage over these last five years since I was installed as lead pastor. Very young in experience, with plenty of room to grow. When I started, I felt like, you know how your mom would buy you shoes at the beginning of the school year? And they'd always be like two sizes too big so that you grew into them by the time school got out because you weren't getting another pair of shoes. You either grew into them or you just had a hole where your big toe was. Either way, I felt like I had some big shoes to grow into. What Jesus shows us here, shows us how as that fruit ripens, how it grows over time, it begins to reveal two aspects of the tree. And the first thing that the fruit begins to reveal is its character, right? It reveals the character, it reveals the, the type of tree, the variety of tree that it is. And my wife, Jill, and I, we lived in Arizona for a few years after, after college, and uh, fruit trees were everywhere. But here's the deal, when they, at the beginning of the season, you, I couldn't tell a lime tree from a lemon tree from an orange tree. They were just, they were citrus trees at that point. You didn't know what they were. You didn't know until they grew the fruit and the fruit began to ripen. And the color of the fruit revealed the type of tree. It revealed its character. And so Jesus asked in verse 16, he asked, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs gathered from thistles? Of course not. What a silly question. But see, what we miss here is that, um, is that from a distance, the, the buckthorn, it, it produced these little black berries that could be mistaken as grapes from a distance. The thistle had a, had a flower that resembled a fig, but the closer you got, the more clearly you could see that was no grape, that was, that was no fig. No, we will recognize the character of the tree by its fruit. And the point here is that we're testing the fruit of this tree against some known standard of truth over time, a standard of truth that reveals the character of the tree. And the same is true for leaders within the church. We have both theological and, and ethical standards of, of orthodoxy and, and orthopraxy, of, of right teaching and right living, of our be, beliefs and our behaviors. And the theological standard that we have been given is God's word. God, he, he said in Jeremiah 23, let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. 
Don't just speak it, but speak it faithfully. And so the question we're asking is, is, does their teaching, does their counsel that they provide, does it adhere to and align with God's word? Now, in a, in a group like this, there are going to be secondary and tertiary doctrines that we might hold different views on within the bounds of Scripture. That's okay. That's okay. But do they stay within the bounds of established orthodox beliefs, and do they ultimately point you to Jesus, yes or no? These orthodox boundaries, they've, they've been defined by the early church in the creeds, created uh, to stop those who had gone out of bounds, like the Apostles' Creed, like the Nicene Creed. And, and what I promise to you, what I commit to you as the pastor of this church, is that regardless of who is preaching from this pulpit, I promise you two things. Number one, they're going to stay in bounds. And number two, amen, kid. They're going to stay in bounds, and they're going to point you to Jesus each and every Sunday. There is a theological standard, but there's also an ethical standard. And the question there is, does their living adhere to and align with God's word? And God also gave us a very clear standard for pastors and elders entrusted with leading the church. He doesn't just give it to us once. He gives it to us twice. He gives it to us in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1. And both of these passages, what I love is that they're focused on the character of the individual, how they live their lives, how they love others. Listen to what, what Paul wrote to Titus here in Titus 1. He says, here's the, the, the ethical standard, if you will. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and their children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. They must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That's the ethical standard. Then he also, he gives a theological standard. He says in verse 9 that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's not about success, is it? It's about faithfulness. It is about obedience. It is about character that is only revealed slowly over time. And so here at Redemption, as we begin to uh, consider someone for elder candidacy, for eldership, we, we spend time with them, a, a lot of time with them, typically well over a year after we've already spent a couple of years with them. But a, but a special year of elder candidacy because it takes time. It takes time to build relationships and to develop that chemistry together, that trust with each other. And it also takes time to see how they respond in various seasons, in various situations, to see that fruit grow and ripen, because that fruit reveals the character. It reveals who they truly are. It reveals if they are, in fact, a wolf. Because here's the thing about a wolf in sheep's clothing. He can only remain disguised for so long before he slips and before he shows you his teeth. And that typically happens when he, when he doesn't get what he wanted, when it doesn't go the way he wanted. It reveals if they are a wolf. It also reveals if they were nothing more than a hired hand who only sticks around as long as things are going well. And Jesus in John 10, he says that, uh, that a hired hand, when he sees a wolf coming, when he sees... It's getting tough when things are getting hard. 
He leaves the sheep and he flees because he cares nothing for the sheep in his care. He's just a hired hand. He's a mercenary. But it also reveals if they are a shepherd, someone called to give up their lives for the sheep, protecting the sheep from the wolves, providing for the sheep, right? Loving them and feeding them. And after the resurrection, I love this passage where, where John, he, he speaks to Peter. They're having breakfast, they're having some fish, and, and Jesus, he says to Peter, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, more than everybody else, more than everything else? And Peter, he said to him, yes, Lord, I, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus, he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Love them, care for them, protect them. But we also learn something else that's interesting in this passage. is that you're not my sheep, are you? You're not my sheep. This is not my church. All of it, you, redemption, it belongs to Jesus, the chief shepherd, amen? That said, your care and the care of this church that has been entrusted to me, it's been entrusted to the elders, to Dan and to Dale and Pastor Rob and myself. It's been entrusted to our staff. It's been entrusted to our leaders. And so our snail pace slow, relational elder candidacy process over our first 12 years, it has revealed both wolves and hired hands. It's revealed them and it has protected us from ever installing them as elders. And it's protected us from ever even having to have a thought of removing a sitting elder. The theological and ethical standards that we are held to are high. They are very high. And that is on purpose because the responsibility that we are given is high. And we feel the weight of that with each and every day, knowing that one day we are going to stand before Jesus. I feel it knowing that I will stand before Jesus as the pastor of this church. And I will give an account for every dollar that we have spent, for every word that I have said, for every text and email that I have sent, all of it, every sermon, every counseling session. We are held to a very high theological standard, but we are held to a very high ethical standard. And that character is only revealed over time. But the fruit, it not only reveals character, it also reveals another thing. It reveals our condition. It reveals the health of the tree. Look at what he says in verse 17 and, uh, verse 17 and 18. He says, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. The character may be solid. They may meet the theological and ethical standards. They may be doing their best at that time to faithfully follow the way of Jesus, but for some reason, they're not healthy. At least not for a season of time. I think what we've all seen and what many of us have experienced is two things. Number one, it's that hurt people hurt people, don't they? Hurt people hurt people. But the other is that sick people infect people, don't they? 
In the midst of a pandemic, ooh, we know that one for sure. Sick people infect people. Tumors, they, they grow. Bacteria, it spreads, and they infect, and they impact every area of the body, right? You don't need to be an epidemiologist to know that. And, and so when we see this, we need, to, we need to diagnose the disease, and we need to nurse the individual back to health. Come alongside them and nursing them back to health, because health is that important. And sometimes that looks like simply changing the rhythms up in your life. Sometimes that looks like an extended break, and sometimes it looks like stepping away for a season. But that health uh, of leaders, it is so important that if you read what we call the vital few on our uh, Who We Are webpage, one of the things you're going to see is called Healthy Churches, Healthy Leaders. And I want to read to you what it says on our website. It says, if Jesus is the head of the church, and is Jesus the head of the church, yes or no? Yes, good, we got that one. Uh, Then the leaders are the heart of the church. And if the heart is sick, the body can never be healthy. It may look healthy. It may even be bearing fruit for a period of time, but it is rotting from the inside out. And so we unapologetically invest a significant amount of time, effort, and resources into the health of our leadership culture because we believe that apart from healthy leaders, we can never be a healthy church. Like I shared with you last Sunday that I knew this spring and coming into the summer uh, I wasn't as healthy as I wanted to be. I wasn't as healthy as I needed to be. And my coach, Matt, he, um, he did a really good job of, of putting into words and describing what it was I was feeling. And, and here's how he described himself. He says, he says, I know that I'm healthy. I'm healthy emotionally. I'm healthy mentally and spiritually and physically, like holistically, every aspect of our being. I know I'm healthy when the tone of the voice inside my head when the voice towards and about the people around me and my voice on social media sound like, who do you think he said? When they sound like Jesus. We've got this phrase that we've been saying lately that we pursue what we prioritize. And so as I have been changing rhythms, modifying rhythms, um, I've been prioritizing things that I've been deprioritizing. I'm prioritizing vacation and I'm prioritizing fun. Who in this room has to prioritize fun? I do. You do. Okay, so there's like three of us here that if we don't prioritize it, it ain't happening. And and not just for me, but for our staff, right? So like we sat down going into the summer and be like, Tim, when are you taking your vacation? Pastor Rob, when are you taking yours? Ash, when are you taking yours? Tim got his scheduled first. He got the blue ribbon, so he won. And then the rest of us were left to schedule around him. But man, we scheduled it. And Pastor Rob's at home right now. He's been hanging out with uh, he's been hanging out with his little boy this week. They're having a ball, I'm assuming, because all I get is cute pictures of his kid. It's kind of like you know how right now I'm spo- I'm posting cute pictures of Alice. He's you know doing the same thing. But we're prioritizing this. But not just that. I'm modifying my rhythms. I'm modifying my diet. I'm down nine since we got home from vacation. Um, I was down ten, but then the weekend came. Modifying exercise, I mentioned I'm riding my bike into work some days. Not by choice, my neighbor made that choice for me. Modifying rest, right, that daily rhythm of rest when we sleep at night and that weekly rhythm of rest on the Sabbath. And so like one of the things, I don't know if I've ever told you this, y'all know that my day off is Monday. And so if you don't get a text response, I seem to get more texts on Monday than the rest of the week. If you don't get a text from me on Monday, I love you. I'm just hopefully not looking at my phone. 
I'm hopefully looking at my family, looking at my Bible, and looking at the back of my eyelids. I'll get back to you on Tuesday. And if I forget to text you back, you lose. Don't you wish we could put that little blue dot on our iPhone back on a text after you look at it? If I don't text you back, you have permission right now to just text me again. Hey, did you see that? Yeah, I did. I missed it. Sorry about that. I'm working on modifying my boundaries. And another thing that I'm working to incorporate is, is times of silence and solitude. And I don't mean silence like listening to the radio. I mean like silence. Simply being in the presence of God, being more aware of his presence and how it is that he is moving. But I'm not doing any of this alone. I'm doing the solitude alone. It's not solitude if you're not alone. I'm not doing this alone. I'm doing this with the help of others. Those that help me see if I'm approaching theological and ethical boundaries. Those that help me, help me see that my health is not what it should be. I've, I've told you this before. I've got a therapist, right? I just saw my therapist, Scott, on Thursday. It was a great session. I, uh, I've got a coach that I meet with every other week. I've got other pastors, friends, and within Converge that I meet with. Had a, had a great conversation with Ryan, our planning pastor, this week, just kind of comparing how each one, how it, we were doing uh, spiritually and emotionally. Not just that, man, we got, we got an incredible staff um, that we get to share stuff with throughout the week. We've got elders that I'm in the, like, minority of pastors and that, man, I love spending time with our elders. I, I, don't, just lo- I don't just love them. Like, I like them. They're good, fun men to be with. And they do a really good job of slapping my wrist when they need to and holding me accountable. I got bruised from one time. Not a real bruise. My wife speaks into my life. My boys speak into my life. And kids are great at that, aren't they? They let you know when something's off. But then I've got this other thing that a lot of pastors don't have, and it's called friends. A lot of pastors don't have that. And a lot of times you're told that you should never have a friend inside your church, and I think that's hogwash, because you know what? Uh, I got friends in this church. Uh, another thing they say is you should never have a friend that's a woman. You should never uh, have a conversation. I, I got friends that are women. They're friends with me. They're friends with my wife. I got friends. I have invited their presence to see into and to be a part of my life, and I have invited their voices to speak into my life in big ways and in little ways. Right before vacation a few weeks ago, I, was, uh, I, I noticed they didn't have any communion under my chair. And so I went and I got the little basket of communion, put on the gloves, and I came in and I put the communion down. I was just walking around looking to see, didn't he, just in case another chair got missed. And um, I won't mention Colette by name, but uh, <laughs> we had a little Priscilla and Apollos moment where she took me aside and she lovingly let me know, that ain't your job, buddy. That's my job. Your job is to get your heart ready to prepare God's word. You go do that and you let me do this. And so, yeah, there's people that have been invited to speak into my life, to slap my wrist when I set out communion cups and I wasn't supposed to. But that's the way it works, isn't it? The more invested and involved you are, the more input you have. And, and like, it takes time to build trust. You can lose trust in an instant. Man, it takes a long time to build it. And so, uh, as your pastor, I just want to say, I'm grateful for all of you, and I'm especially grateful for you, those of you that are so involved, so invested that uh, you see things and you take action on them. I am grateful for that, that we, we get to lead and love this church together. And on the other side of that, I also should probably point out that like, we're not going to agree on everything, are we? 
We're not going to agree on, on uh, you're not going to agree with every decision we make. You're not going to agree with every direction we take. I know that, and, and I'm okay with that. And so what we constantly strive to do is that even if you might not agree with the what, you understand the why behind the what. And I promise that every decision that we make is made both prayerfully and carefully. It is not made in isolation, but it is made in community, seeking counsel and advice and wisdom from others who know more than us, which is a lot of people. We seek their input. We seek your input on these things. And like, can we just kind of acknowledge that like, this is a bit of an awkward passage for a pastor to preach. Uh, it would have been more fun if like Pastor Rob took this passage, wouldn't it? No, he's on vacation. Just happens to be that week. And I know some are going to be quick to rush past this one. It's just like a footnote in their sermon amongst other passages or, or redirected towards others that, you know what? The wolf is you. I'm looking out for you. And hear me, while this passage does apply to wolves in the pews, it primarily is about wolves in the pulpit. It's a passage about me. It's a passage about the elders, about the leaders. And so it is about wolves in the pews, and when a wolf creeps into the flock, when he walks in our doors, it is our responsibility. It is a shepherd's responsibility to protect the flock by identifying the wolf and eliminating the threat. And over time, you learn to smell them coming. But here I think is why this passage is so important, why we don't jump past this. Why, when we went through 1 Peter, we sat in that passage in chapter 5. It's because it's primarily about pastors and elders and the staff and those entrusted by Jesus to lead his church, his body, his bride. But what I know, and I think many of us know, some through firsthand experience, is that there's no shortage of stories of pastors falling and failing and hurting countless others in the process, including some of you here this morning. Pastors have manipulated and abused their power and their people emotionally, spiritually, even sexually. And their churches have covered it up, protecting the one who sinned at the expense of the one who was sinned against, right? Vilifying the victim, protecting their brand over their people. And like, I don't know about you, but I don't want a podcast or a blog or a book written about our rise and fall. And I don't want that. I don't even care if nobody writes a word about us. I really don't. But if they do, I hope they write about our faithfulness and our obedience. That's what I hope they write about. See, there's... There is no one safer to be known by, to be seen by, to be with than Jesus. Where we can be truly seen and our full selves can be truly known. Even those parts that we try and hide. And as his bride, as his body, there should be no safer place to be. There should be no people safer than the church. The problem is the place that should have been safe, the people that should have loved you and cared for you let you down. They hurt you. Man, if that's you, I am so, so sorry you had to experience that. 
I've experienced that. And so I get it. I get that it's hard to trust again. It's hard to trust a church again. It's hard to trust a pastor again. It's hard to trust me, not because of anything I've done, but because of those that have come before me. I get that. You're skeptical. You should be. And so hear me. I'm not asking you in this moment to trust me. I'm simply asking you to get to know me, to get to know us. Slowly, patiently, watching that fruit that others have already seen grow and ripen, you haven't, and that's okay. Give it time. But if I can provide some comfort in the words of Jesus here, I need you to know that God sees and God knows. And he's going to hold those that have hurt you accountable. He will execute his judgment one day because what Jesus says in verse 19 is that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And in case we're missing what Jesus is saying, he later clarifies this warning to the Pharisees in chapter 23, and he says, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Now, we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day, aren't we? We are all going to stand there, and we are going to be judged. We are going to be held accountable. And thank God Jesus took on that sin and for us. Amen? We're going to be judged and held accountable for the harm we've caused and the hurt we've inflicted. And what Jesus' own half-brother James says is that we who teach, we're going to be judged with greater strictness than the rest. Because we're held to a higher theological and ethical standard than the rest. And Jesus closes in verse 20 with a reminder saying, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Man, I've, uh, I've never written a book. I may never. I've never spoken at a conference. I may never. Never had a podcast or a popular blog that was getting retweeted around, and I may never. Never had a big social media follow. May never. Never pastored a big church. May never. Only ever pastored one church, this church. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay that I'm not living up to the measurements defined by many to define a successful church and a successful pastor. I'm okay with that. Six days out of seven, I'm okay with that. Then a friend writes a book or tells you he's writing a book and you get a little jealous. And you know, and if you're not okay with any of that, I'm okay with that. Because I... I want to be, I just simply want to be faithful and obedient. I want to be faithful and obedient to what God has called me to do, and that is loving and leading this church, you. The one that he's entrusted to me and the elders. And uh, as I read Eugene Peterson's biography this spring, I was like, I want to be like that. I want to finish well. That seems to be a rarity in ministry right now. So if you could pray for me, Dear God, help Pastor Ash finish well. You can't pray that enough for me. See, my desire as your pastor is for this to be a safe place, a a refuge, a a sanctuary. We don't meet in a worship center. We meet in a sanctuary. We meet in a safe place, a place of rest, a place of worship, a place where hurting people can, God willing, begin to heal. 
a place where we are all growing each and every day to be more and more like Jesus. And for us to come together as brothers and sisters, united in Christ as a family. Yeah, we are a jacked up, messed up family though, aren't we? And don't be pointing at that person sitting next to you. Just point at yourself. I'm the chief of the messed up, jacked up ones. But you know, that's okay. I want this to be a place where it's okay to not be okay. I don't want anybody putting a mask on when you walk in that door. Because see, I want you to know, we're all on the same journey, aren't we? We're all on the same journey of faithfully following the way of Jesus. We are all headed to the same destination. We've all entered by that same narrow gate that we kind of had to sneak through, it felt like. We're all on the same journey. But what I know to be true is we couldn't be on any more different points along that journey, could we? And, and so what that means is we don't look at the person who's over here and condemn them for where they're at. And, and we don't have to look at the person that's over here further along than us and, and beat ourselves up because we're not there yet. No, can we just accept we're messed up, we're jacked up, we're sinners and saved by grace on a journey at different points of the journey, but man, we're on the journey together, amen? That's who I want us to be. Because man, I just want to continue faithfully following the way of Jesus every day of my life. And I want to help you as your pastor to do that. And so my prayer is that you would join in that journey with us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.